You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Today's guest is Dr. David Weil, who is the former director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Transplant Program at Stanford. He's currently the head of the Weil Consulting Group, which focuses on improving the delivery of transplant care. Dr. Weil has been writing has been featured on the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Salon, Newsweek, the Chicago Tribune, Stat, the Washington Post, The Hill, and the Los Angeles Times. So very prolific writer. In fact, uh, prolific enough that uh, Dr. Weil wrote a book. Um, it's called Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant, who's, uh, who's available on Amazon currently. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Weil, today. I'm quite excited to talk to you about transplant medicine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's let's go all the way back here. We do have some medical students as listeners. And um, tell me, what interested you in becoming a transplant doctor in the first place? So I uh, I got exposed to medicine really early. My dad was a physician, and I actually was that kid that did rounds with their father on the weekends. That was me. Um, I also um, worked in hospitals um, in both high school and college. So I was exposed to that environment really early. But transplant medicine came to me really when I was an intern. There was, uh, uh, right as soon as I showed up for my internship, someone on the kidney transplant service, a very senior resident, actually got sick, unfortunately, and had to had to miss the whole rotation. So they needed an intern to do some of the more mundane tasks. And I volunteered myself for that. And uh, I saw a kidney transplant up, up close in 1990 and fell in love with the field. Ultimately, did lung transplant, but it, uh, I I was at least exposed to the uh, transplant world that way. And another question here, I guess, is I mean, it might be a bit different in Canada, but how do you become a transplant doctor in the U.S.? Like, it's an internal medicine, and then you subspecialize, or what's the process like? Yeah, so they're both surgeons and um, internists that are interested in transplant. I took it from the internal medicine side, so basically, I did four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine, and I, I did a three-year fellowship in pulmonary and critical care at the University of Colorado. And during one of those years, I did 12 months dedicated to lung transplant uh, exclusively, so learned it that way. And is it, that might be a bit of a silly question, but is it, because again, in Canada, we have a huge issue with supply and demand in terms of healthcare. Um, is it competitive? Uh, to get into transplant medicine, or or how does it how is it in the U.S. currently? It used to be, right. <laughs> um, and I and I must say one of the things that I'm worried a lot about, and I actually wrote wrote a few articles about this, is the shortage of people going into the transplant field in general. Yeah. I think there are probably a lot of reasons for that: uh, the work hours, the lack of. Um, work-life balance, uh, uh, the patients sometimes don't do well. I think all those are factors, but right now we are experiencing a shortage in the transplant field, and that worries me um, because there's not enough people to really fill all the spots in the programs right now. Okay, so you're having a similar issue to Canada, unfortunately. There's, there's a demand and supply mismatch between that. And, but I guess it's a very challenging career, and, and perhaps I want to I want to ask some very specific questions about how things work then. Let's start on the patient side here. How does the waiting list work in the U.S.? Um, I mean, is it first comes, first served? Do you have a scoring system in terms of the patient's health? How does it work exactly? 
Yeah, up until 2005, it was a first-come, first-served basis. But then all four solid organs, heart, lung, kidney, liver, have gradually gone to an urgency-based system where essentially you're getting a score based on how sick you are and the sicker patients move to the top of the wait list. So in all four solid organs, we now have that system where it's not just first come, first serve anymore. It's more of an urgency-based system. And is it, is, is it also, is it based on how healthy the, the, the patient is? Is there any scoring around that? or, or how, like? No, how it's that? really based on, you know, you, you essentially input all the patient's clinical data right. and a score is then generated um, for each individual patient. So generally speaking, the patients that are the sickest go to the top of the waiting okay. list. That, that makes sense. What are the current one-year and five-year survival rates for lung transplants in the U.S.? Do you have a yeah, average idea? I do. Um, so most programs for one-year survival is about 85 to 90%. So we're pretty okay. good at getting patients to one year. And that's how program quality is really judged based on that one-year survival. Obviously, patients want to live a lot longer than that. The five-year survival, it drops off um, really almost exclusively due to chronic rejection. So the five-year survival in our okay. country is around 60 or 65%, which isn't nearly good enough, and, and lags behind the other solid organs like kidney, heart, and liver. Which one, which one is the highest in terms of survival rates of, of those three you mentioned? Kid, kidney transplant has, is associated okay. with the best longevity after the transplant. So the lung just just a much higher rate of rejection than the other. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's a highly immunogenic organ, and also mm -hmm. it's exposed to the outside environment. So it seems like um, a lot more can go wrong. But uh, you know, we're hopeful that over time those numbers will improve. Uh, but so far, they're lagging behind the other solid organs. Okay, and so so is it having to do with just the type of medication that are being used is, is there research being done to figure out specific lung specific medications for this transplant patient quite quite a bit of research okay. being done about all the factors that contribute to this chronic rejection that that lung transplant recipients receive so i think over time it's going to be you know more clear to us why that is that lungs don't do as well as the other solid organs. But right now, we just know that to be true and aren't exactly sure why. So, so going back a bit to quality control, because right now you, you're involved in, I'm assuming, in improving the quality of programs, right? So yes. the big metric is the one-year survival rate. Is, is that yes. the one that we all look at? Yes. Okay. Is there any other metrics that, sh that, 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 that tend to be looked at, or is that specific, the one specific thing? It, it it for years has been the one specific thing, but more recently there's been other things that other parameters that have been looked at, like survivability on the waiting list, um, what how how fast a patient will be transplanted, those kinds of things. But mostly in the U.S., especially one year survival is the one that's focused on the most. Okay. And maybe we can talk about your consulting work a bit later, because I'm interested how you can improve that in terms of quality control. But um, just going back to the patient experience as well, what are the overall donation rates in the U.S.? Did you have an idea overall? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, even um, even after all these years of 
you know, trying to get consent for organ donation. In a brain dead donor, it's only a 50% chance that that person will donate. So, mm -hmm. you know, whether or not the family consents for it, generally speaking, is a 50 50 proposition. It does vary by socioeconomic status. Um, those with higher education levels, uh, higher incomes, certain parts of the country will experience higher rates than 50-50. But if you take the nation as a whole, it's around 50%. And I'm assuming the U.S. is like Canada. You have an opt-in system currently for organ donation? That's okay. right. Um, has there been any talk? I, I know Canada had some talk about this, but nothing serious of, of an opt-out system to improve rates? Quite a bit of discussion yeah. about that, and there, in the, in the United States, it's done state by state. So oh, there's right, state right. state legislatures that are considering that right now. But a lot of a lot of concerns about that in our country. I'm actually in favor of an opt out system. Um, being a transplant doctor, I think that uh, most transplant doctors would be. But right now, uh, there's been no state, uh, to my knowledge, that has adopted an opt uh, opt out system. And uh, it's what countries have done, like maybe give me an example here. I'm assuming yeah. Europe probably has some countries with an opt out system. They do. Probably yeah. the most prominent example, Dimitri, is um, is Spain. Okay. Uh, right. So Spain. Uh, just just a few years ago, developed um, an opt-out system and actually saw organ donation rates go way up, as we would expect. And there's been a lot of articles written about the success of that system in, in Spain. And, uh, and I think it's a real model for us to use here in the U.S. And what about, I've also read, no, this is a bit more controversial, but I read it's people talking about paying for the organs as well, maybe restitution or... How serious is that of an option? And do you think it's a good idea at all? Yeah, several years ago, there were also state legislatures uh, considering uh, paying donor families as well. But that kind of fell by the wayside because it, of the development of you know perverse incentives and things like right. that that maybe would not be um, in the in the patient's best interest. So I have not heard any current discussion about resurrecting. Uh, a, a payment system for it. I guess another question I have, because again, the issue of the opt-in system that we have is people may never think about it. Right? They may That's never right. actually. So is there some kind of push to advertise organ donation? I'm assuming it's state-based as well, because in Canada, it's never heard of. Like At some point, I think in the 90s, I was hearing about it, and then it died off. You should yeah. donate your organs. I think the, I think the, the biggest push has been through small organizations okay. that have tried to educate the public about it. There's also been a real push to get to the uh, religious institutions to try to see if they could talk about it with their congregation, their parishioners. But I think right now, in the United States at least, the biggest promoter of organ donation has been when you go to get your driver's license. You know, you're... Right ask that question, do you want to become an organ donor or not? And so that's probably most people's only interaction with even considering whether or not they should be an organ donor. That's not a bad interaction, though, because a lot of people have a driving license, right? Uh, that's exactly and, That's exactly right. That's I'm, exactly right. I'm curious, who had the idea? Of, this sounds like a genius idea. Who had the idea of doing this? It, it ha I remember when it happened. It was yeah. decades ago when I first started out in the field. And 
you know, th the idea was that we have a captive audience. Also, we know that a lot of organ donors come from motor vehicle accidents, and we thought since most right. people would have a driver's license on them, that it would be a good idea to have it indicated one way or the other at that point. Um, and I think it's I think it's worked somewhat. I don't think it's worked completely, obviously, with only a 50% donation rate. So what happens specifically? Let's say that you, you have somebody who unfortunately passed away in the hospital and you don't know their status. What happens? Do you get called? Do you have to talk to the family? What's the logistics behind those people? Have yeah, hospitals in yeah. the United States, even if somebody is not a suitable donor, are required to 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 okay. contact the local donor service. And so then it becomes a discussion with the family. Assuming somebody is has viable organs and could be considered an organ donor, at that point, it's a discussion between the family and in the United States, the organ procurement organizations. I think that that's why it's so important, and we always tell everybody this, and when I go around and talk, I say this all the time, is you have to tell your family members what you want to do, right. uh, because they're going to be the ones that, generally speaking, make the decision. So, so digging deeper here, I, I guess the big question I have is, is, is there an issue with supply in terms of organs? Um, in the states, like, or is is the supply the issue? Is there something else the issue that's sort of getting in the way of the waiting list? What's what's the biggest issue here? I I think we had traditionally been thought, we've been taught, and we thought that supply was the issue. Yeah, there right. was too much right. demand. I don't think that that's necessarily oh, the case. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote a Wall Street Journal article about this in 2019, and have talked a lot about it. I think our biggest issue is the utilization of the organs that we have out there. There's a lot of logistical issues in trying to get organs from the donor hospital to the recipient hospital. Right. You have to be able to do that 24-7, 365. And I think if we can overcome those logistical issues, then the organ utilization rates will go up. And it may be that we really don't have a supply issue. I'm, I'm working with a, a, one company in particular called Transmedics, and in full disclosure, I sit on their, their board of directors, where technology is available to keep those organs alive and, in fact, help move them around the country so that the logistical barriers don't become the barrier to transplant. Wow, so, so you, can, you can move, move an organ from, from one state to the next. You can, you can have that. And that's right. Interesting, yeah, because that's always been, you know, that's why I love talking to people who know who were actually in the field, because that's always been the assumption you don't have enough organs. But it sounds like there's some waste, unfortunately, that's happening in the system. I think there, I think there is. I think organs are probably wasted every single night, uh, and I think that it's become clear to us that there's a technological solution to us. We just have to be smarter about the way that we move these organs around the country. So I guess that touches a bit on what you're doing now, because you, you're not no longer a lung transplant doctor. You're a consultant. Um, you have your own company. And tell me a bit about the process there. First of all, how did you? Why did you switch careers? I guess what was the what was the pushing reason? Yeah, I think um, you know after 20 years um, on the front lines of this, I thought that it was time for a career change for me personally and also for my family. I write about that a bit in my book right. about the decision making that was involved in that, and I tried to figure out 
you know, I was relatively young, 52 years old when I left Stanford, and I wanted to be able to contribute to the field. And I thought, well, how do I do that? And I think the best way for me to do that now is to help programs perform better. So I work with transplant programs that might be struggling for a variety of reasons. And I'm at this point more coach than quarterback, <laughs> to use a sports analogy. <laughs> right. And I feel like in that way, I can still take what I know and contribute to the field. I also, as I mentioned, work with companies that are in the transplant arena that might also need my help. And I feel like if I can, if I can help those companies help people, that I'm still, you know, relevant to the field and still, uh, you know, helping patients. Uh, do you do any? Do you do any teaching? Do you teach students at all? Or do I, you... I, I don't do as much of that as I do. I do a, a quite a bit of teaching in my consulting right. practice because right. I'm taking, you know, younger physicians now that are coming up in the field, and I'll take that person. And, and work with them one-on-one -on -one to, you know, give them things to think about so that they can do their job better. So what's, what's, your tip, what's a typical day like of a consultant then? How does it work? How many meetings and emails a day are you dealing with? Yeah, <laughs> lots, of, lots of both. Um, right. And it depends really on, on where I am with an individual hospital. So some of the hospitals I've been working with for years already um, and some are new. And so the ones that are newer, I tend to, you know, have more contact with each day. And the ones that I've been working with for now several years, I tend not to. So it kind of depends on where we are and the duration of the relationship. How big is your team? Is it just you? Do you have? No, I have, uh, there's six of us total. Okay. Um, right. So uh, five other folks with me. That's great. So how many years have you been doing? Have you been doing consulting then? I left Stanford in 2016 and opened my consulting group right after. So I guess that's uh, seven years ago, almost exactly. That's great. Yeah, I, mean, I think you touched a bit about this uh, when you talked about burnout, but also you mentioned that there's um, an issue with supply of transplant doctors. In fact, it's something that you're worried about. And burnout is a big, is a big thing. Everybody's talking about burnout. Um, so I guess my question to you is, Looking at your 20 years of, of, of medical practice, uh, very stressful situations, I can't even imagine how you're dealing with these, these issues. Some people are, are built for that, but for newer doctors, is, is there a way for both themselves and the hospital? Because it's, it's an issue with the hospital, not just with the person themselves to, I guess, prevent burnout or decrease the rates of burnout. And in fact, as a consultant, do you even deal with that aspect? I, I deal with that a lot, okay, actually. Right. Uh, so team dynamics and the functioning of these individual transplant teams, I deal with all of it. So I remind the teams of the things that they can do to actually feel, you know, more fulfilled and less burnt out. And a lot of it has to do with connection, you know, connection to themselves and to their family and friends, but also to one another on the team. So I do a lot of team building with the hospitals that I consult with. And I think that helps. I think it's amazing. a lot of people have burnout when they get disconnected from either their family and friends and or their teams. And I certainly experienced both uh, when I was going through my last part at Stanford. And I really work a lot with the teams, uh, whether or not they ask me specifically for that or not it ends up go going to that because so many of the transplant teams in our country are experiencing uh, burnout kind of symptoms. A lot of, a lot of our programs. It's, I mean, I would say myself, but we, we've all been through burnout in healthcare. 
<laughs> it's it's a I, high burnout. Yeah. But I think that's right. I, I think yeah. it's I, I think it's the system. You know, yeah. I think it's a very yeah. difficult system. Um, I'm sure in the in Canada as well as in the U- U.S., it's a very difficult system to navigate. And so I think it's less an individual problem than it is a reflection of the system, the ecosystem that we work in. It's really interesting about connection to your team is is they did a study in Canada looking at, at the effect of removing the doctor's lounge and burnout rates, I believe. Um, and I noticed that because being able to talk to your team to just be yourself with your team really helps. Um, and I'm hoping that doctor lounges make a comeback because uh, they were there when I was a resident, but they're gone now. That's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I hadn't seen a study like yeah. that. I'd like to take a look at that. Yeah. I When I go and talk, I actually gave a talk um, last week uh, to a group and I told them that happy hour was a real key um, for transplant teams, you know, to be able to socialize periodically in an um, informal setting. And I, I, I'd be curious to look at that kind of study. That'd be great. That's great. You know, and then, uh, it's great that you're actually doing the team building thing as well. No, I didn't know that. And do you like, do you get, do, do hospitals come to you? How, how does it usually work? How do you? Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't advertise. It's kind right. of a difficult thing to advertise. So yeah. um, my, my business is all word of mouth. All word of mouth. Amazing. You know, some people find me by the writings that I do. Some people found me in relationship to my book. It it just it comes to me in a variety of ways. Let's talk about writing because you write a lot. And I just want to ask you, because I, I had the impression, I had the imagination of writing a book some sometime in my in my career. And then I said this is, seems like an impossible task. So how did you do it? Did you grind every day? How did you write that book? I'm just curious. Did you have to grind every day, just sit, have an hour every day where you're writing something? Did you have these spurts where you're writing more or less? How did this book come to be? Yeah, I, <laughs> when, I, when, I left, uh, when I left Stanford, I had a lot on my mind. And fortunately, it, I, I kept a journal uh, for most of the time that oh, I was okay. there. And, yeah. and I would encourage people in the clinical realm to do that so they remember. And I'm talking about... It's, it wasn't really even in English. It was in these little phrases and right. these little bullet points. Right. And then I, when I left Stanford in 2016, and before my consulting practice got really busy, I, I wrote every day uh, for three to four hours, and I tried to weave the story together. I knew that I was going to write a book when I left Stanford, and I wanted for people to feel what it's like to do this job, you know, and to see the transplant um, life and to see what it's like behind the curtain. And I tell patient stories, but I I mainly focus on, you know, what it feels like to deliver this kind of care. What impact does it have? And my writing process was, I, I really only got about three to four hours each day in me, and then I have to stop and do something else. All right. So right now, for instance, I write for the first three to four hours in the morning. I, I, I'm personally better in the morning. Yeah. And then yeah. I stop and I do all my consulting work in the second half of the day. And that's how I do it. Yeah, it was, it was I forget the author. It was a very famous American author who that's when she wrote best, five o'clock in the morning, between five and seven, when everything was quiet, the kids were quiet. That was the best time. So you're not the only one. But yeah, that, that's great. Three to four hours is a lot. Is a, is a lot of time. It's a um, lot of writing. I, um, I I'm pretty I'm pretty spent at that point. I don't have too many good sentences left in me at that time. 
Was there a therapeutic aspect right in this book? Because again, you you went through yeah. burnout, right? Was there something yes. that you found that it helped with? Definitely. I mean, I I think the first draft came out in three or four months. I mean, the whole book was drafted, <laughs> and then it took me about two years of editing to um, to make it more readable. But I I definitely think it helped my emotional state. I, I think it was cathartic in a lot of ways. You know, I think writing helps people understand what happened to them. Um, and for me, it was critical. In fact, I, I continue. I've, I've written a second book now that I hope to get published uh, and out to that's the public excellent. in 2024. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that's excellent. Maybe I'll, uh, hopefully I can talk to you again after you publish that one. But That'd be great. Thank you so much for your time. This was very enlightening. Um, and yes, uh, the book currently is on Amazon, I'm assuming, right? You can get it on Amazon. Yes. Can you get it yes. off the website as well? Or how, how? Yeah, uh, davidweilmd.com is my website, and the book's available on Amazon for those who want to read it. And I'll link that to the podcast notes and the, uh, the mailing. But thank you for your time. So enlightening, and all the best to you. Great. Thank you.